Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, you're having a chat about some of the biggest misconceptions about some famous things from history. And I know that there is nothing that listeners of this show love more than a bit of good old-fashioned, well, actually, and let me tell you today, I am here to give it to you. There, there are a lot of things that we think we know about history, things that everyone more or less takes as fact that are actually completely false. For instance, you might, you might have been told that Napoleon was a tiny little short fella, but you'll, you'll remember from episodes 211, 212, get across him, that he wasn't short at all, just an average height for a Frenchman of his day and age. But what other widely held misconceptions about history lurk below the surface? Well, let me tell you, a whole bloody lot, a whole bloody lot of them, as it turns out, things like the 4th of July not being the date on which the Declaration of Independence was signed, for instance, or the Great Wall of China not being visible from space, or the fact that Ninja did not, in fact, wear black, nor did Vikings wear horned helmets, and, of course, one of the most famous historical misconceptions, the myth of the flat earth, which tells us that up until only quite recently, historically speaking, most people thought that the earth was flat. They did not. They knew it was, was round. We've known the earth was round for millennia, but even so, People today think that we didn't know this until the, only the last couple of centuries. Anyway, in this episode, we're going to get across these five historical misconceptions. We're going to talk about how and why they came into being, how they came about in the first place. And of course, we'll talk about the ways in which they are wrong. From ancient China to the age of the Vikings, from medieval Japan to, to revolutionary America, so much to get across today. So let's get underway. Let's get underway here, get into our first misconception. Off we go. We're going all the way back. Yeah, we're going all the way back to 1776 to July to the 2nd of July, not the 4th, to talk about the Declaration of Independence. Ask most Americans these days why they celebrate the 4th of July, Independence Day, and they'll tell you something along the lines of, oh, it's when the Declaration of Independence was signed, or it's when we declared independence from the British, or even... It's the day that George Washington finally killed King George III. Obviously, none of those things are true. Not even the bit about George Washington killing George III. Although, I did. This is this is this actually happened. I'm not making this up. This isn't a joke. I did overhear a mum talking to her children in the line to see the Declaration of Independence in the U.S. National Archives in Washington D.C. many years ago. I overheard I overheard her talking about how the U.S. won the American Revolutionary War when George Washington killed George III. I, yeah. Having the two of them duel might have actually saved a lot of time. And I tell you what, the smart money would have been on Washington. Great big, huge fella he was. George and uh, yeah, George III was not the healthiest bloke by, by any means whatsoever. Washington would have absolutely owned him, which isn't surprising because... Washington had a lot of experience when it came to owning other people. Anyway, Independence Day uh, may commemorate the founding of the United States of America, but the 4th of July 1776 is not, as you may have thought, when that founding actually took place. 
The official legal separation of the 13 colonies and, and, and their new union as, as the United States of America took place on the 2nd of July, not the 4th, when the Second Continental Congress passed what's known as the Lee Resolution. The Lee Resolution stated that the 13 colonies, known back then as the United Colonies, were, quote, free and independent states, uh, asserting themselves as no longer being under British rule. Richard Henry Lee, a delegate to the Second Continental Congress from Virginia, had introduced the resolution on the 7th of June, 1776, and it was debated until the 2nd of July when it was passed by 12 of the 13 colonies. Why 12, you may ask? New York didn't vote for the Lee Resolution. But before you go around accusing New Yorkers of hating freedom and liberty and cheeseburgers and assault weapons and everything else that makes America what it is, hold your horses for just one second. The New York delegates didn't vote for the resolution, that's true, but they didn't vote against it either. They actually abstained as uh, as they hadn't been told how to vote on it by the time the vote came around on the 2nd. And then later on the 9th, they added their support to the resolution as well. So it was essentially unanimous. Anyway, the newspapers both uh, on the evening of the 2nd and on the morning of the 3rd, ran great big splashy stories about the vote. The Continental Congress declared the United Colonies free and independent states. And there was much rejoicing. Bald eagles screeching, fireworks flying into the sky, pharmaceutical companies getting ready to make billions of dollars. And plenty of people back then thought that the 2nd would go on to become a national holiday for the young nation, including US founding father and eventual president John Adams. This is what he wrote. <clears throat> The 2nd day of July, 1776, will be the most memorable epoch in the history of America. I am apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the Great Anniversary Festival. That's the 2nd of July, so Adams was wrong about that one. Instead, the Lee Resolution was blown out of the water by a little thing called the Declaration of Independence. After the Lee Resolution was passed, the Committee of Five, led by Thomas Jefferson, made the final preparations to present the Declaration of Independence as the rationale for the Lee Resolution, essentially explaining why the Second Continental Congress had passed it. The Declaration is, is of course, considered to be one of the founding documents of the United States, very famous in US history, even if you're not American, there's a good chance you've heard of it. But at the time, as I say, the Declaration of Independence was just a formal explanation of why the colonies were splitting from the British. It did gain a lot of traction, a lot of publicity. Uh, it was proclaimed across the colonies very quickly and very noisily. And because of the enormous amount of attention that the Declaration drew, and because of the fact that the Declaration was ratified by the Second Continental Congress on the 4th of July, the 4th ended up becoming the date associated with American independence and therefore became the date that was celebrated every year, starting that very next year, right? But you're thinking, okay, hang on, let's let's not split hairs, right? Even if the 2nd of July is when the Lee Resolution officially caused the colonies to become independent, everyone still signed the declaration on the 4th, that's when it was ratified, the famous date on which this famous document was made official when all the founding fathers signed it, right? Right? Well, no. Almost certainly not, no, because the Declaration of Independence was not signed on the 4th. It wasn't even signed in July. The signing of the Declaration of Independence took place on the 2nd of August 1776, almost a month after it was ratified by the Congress. But none of this matters, really. Back then, 
Didn't matter. Today doesn't matter. Uh, It was the fourth, the day that the declaration was ratified and promulgated, that stuck in people's memories. And as I say, the very next year, it was the fourth that was celebrated, not the second. And then the year after that, on the 4th of July, 1778, George Washington himself took a break from his rigorous preparations to personally murder George III to celebrate the date with his soldiers, giving them all a double ration of rum while firing off some cannons. And these days, almost 250 years later, Americans still do the very same thing every 4th of July. They get drunk and enjoy some dangerous explosions. You might have heard it claimed that the Great Wall of China is visible from space, and at the risk of this section of the show being very short, you can't. That's more or less all there is to it. Um, As far back as the 18th century, people guessed that you'd be able to see uh, the Great Wall if you stood on the moon. Uh, But these are the same people that believe that there were artificially made canals on Mars that proved that we had little Martian neighbours. All the same, this myth caught on in a big way, well before we actually reached space as a species. And it's completely false. We'll talk about why in just a little bit. But before that, let's talk about the wall itself, right? The Great Wall uh, is actually more than just one wall. There are tons of sections of it, uh, over 21,000 kilometres all up, although there is a main wall, probably the part that you imagine in your head when you think about it, uh, that's, uh, that's nearly 9,000 kilometres long, 8,800 8, kilometres long. Um, parts of these walls and fortifications were built as far back as the 7th century BCE, over 2,500 years ago. But the most famous parts were built between 400 and 700 years ago. These are the parts, as I say, that you imagine when you think of the uh, of the Great Wall, the Ming Great Wall, so named because it was built during the Ming Dynasty. Uh, these are the parts that are, that are in the best condition or have been properly restored, the parts that you see in tourist snaps, wide walkable walls with, you know, the little guard towers here and there. But why was the wall built? Why did it exist in the first place? Well, these walls and fortifications were all built at different times and for different reasons, but the general reason for the wall's existence won't surprise you, as it is one of the main reasons that walls are built in the first place, to keep some people on one side and other people on the other. Whether the people you're trying to keep on the other side are raiders, enemy soldiers, migrants, or even just traders and merchants, at various times, these walls were built and used for all sorts of different purposes, from military defence to border controls to taxation on travelling merchants. Um, And additionally, interestingly, Sections like the Ming walls, wide and walkable, could be used for transport. The tops of the walls were like roads. Armies could actually march along the tops of the walls themselves to to get around. The Great Wall in its entirety is an incredible feat of engineering from across the centuries. It's it's a wonder of the world. Um, And again, different parts of it built at different times are made of different things. Stone, wood, earth, bricks, all sorts of stuff. Uh, Although there is another lesser known misconception about the wall when it comes to what it's made of. Uh, How about that? Two misconceptions for the price of one. How very lucky you are. Um, There are nonsense stories about how sections of the Great Wall were made from human bones. Absolute nonsense. Not true. Bones are not a particularly, particularly resilient thing to build structures out of. Um, although, surprisingly, the story about them using sticky rice soup to hold bricks together as a kind of mortar is actually completely true. 
we, I mean, I love a bit of sticky rice, delicious. But think about what's going to be. Oh no, no, don't, don't throw those leftovers out, mate. Use them as mortar. Bloody building the Great Wall. Don't, don't throw the leftovers out there. Anyway, when it comes to uh, its visibility from space, right? Let's get into this. The Great Wall, as great as it is, right? Not trying to take anything away from this wall. Certainly very great. When it comes to uh, being visible from space, I'm sorry to say it. it it doesn't stack up all that well. It's often put forward as the only human-made object visible from space, but that isn't true for a couple of reasons, which we'll come to. Um, sometimes particularly dedicated idiots claim that it's even visible from the moon, which is especially untrue. It's hard enough to see bloody New Zealand from the moon, never mind the Great Wall. Anyway, the Great Wall is is not the only human-made object visible from space for, for two simple reasons. One... It isn't visible from space, not really. And two, even if it were, there are plenty of other human-made objects that are most definitely visible from space. So even if it were visible, it wouldn't it wouldn't be the only one. Space is generally defined as being 100 kilometers from sea level, where the so-called Kármán line separates the upper atmosphere from space. Um, and if you are in a particularly low altitude, low Earth orbit. Apparently, you can see the Great Wall, according to astronauts who have been up there. But even then, you need absolutely perfect conditions. And you have to have a very specific knowledge of what you're looking for. Uh, So much so that uh, even experts have embarrassed themselves pretty badly when it comes to uh, spotting the Great Wall from space. In 2003, the European Space Agency claimed that the Great Wall of China could indeed be seen from low Earth orbit, and they published a picture to prove it. And this picture was of a river, not the Great Wall, and certainly not the ESA's proudest moment. The ESA website has since been updated to clarify that you cannot, after all, see the Great Wall from space. Oops, got that one wrong. Um, But in any case, as I mentioned, there's another part of this misconception that makes it doubly false because other human-made objects can be seen from space. Cities, for instance, especially at night when they're lit up. But if you're not going to let me claim a city as an object, fair enough. There are, however... Things like the massive greenhouse complex in southern Spain that you can see from space, 260 square kilometres, bigger than several of the world's smallest nations. Episode 229, get across it. Or there's the 10 kilometre long cooling pond at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in Ukraine, or the colossal Bingham Canyon mine in the US, the largest human-made excavation in the world. So no... The Great Wall of China is not the only human-made object visible from space. As impressive and as large as the Great Wall is, it just isn't visible from all the way up in space. But then again, I don't think that the people that built it really factored celestial visibility into their plans, to be honest. When you think of a ninja, I'm guessing that you probably think of one of two things. Either a hooded figure, clad in black, silently scaling a wall in the moonlight, wielding all manner of fancy weapons, or you think of a bipedal pizza-eating turtle in a New York sewer. Now, I'm certainly not here to dispel the misconception that there is a gang of crime-fighting, monstrous, masked, Shalonian vigilantes living under New York City. That is a well-established fact. No, I'm here instead to talk about what ninja, actual historical ninja, looked like. Because they weren't the hooded, black-clad assassins that you imagine. Uh, In fact, they basically never wore black at all. Um, Also, I didn't think it was necessary to point this out, but they... 
they did exist. Ninja were real. They're not like goblins or unicorns or whatever. They're, they're a real thing from history. Some people may not have been aware of that, as I discovered when talking about this, uh, this topic with friends of mine. Anyway, what were ninja? They were essentially covert agents who specialised in stealth and deception, who could perform tasks and missions seen as beneath the honour and dignity of the samurai. We actually don't have a hugely complete amount of information about ninja for, for two reasons. One, the nature of their work, secretive and stealthy, naturally led to less being written and recorded about them. And secondly, they have so thoroughly captured people's imaginations over the centuries, particularly recently, that sometimes it's very hard to separate truth from fiction. Anyway, here's what I can tell you. Between the 15th and 19th centuries, alongside regular troops and soldiers, people began to train in the art of what became known as ninjutsu, covert operations focusing on infiltration, espionage, reconnaissance, sabotage, and even assassination. All these things were, as I mentioned, beneath the honourable samurai class who were bound by a strict code of conduct known as Bushido. These students of ninjutsu, however, the ninja, they had no such scruples and they were happy enough to do the dirty deeds asked of them by whoever needed these dirty deeds doing. In fact, many ninja were simply mercenaries selling their skills to the highest bidder. Kind of came with the territory, really, when you weren't ever expected to be honourable by the very nature of your work. You just went off and worked for whoever was going to give you the best price. And what was the nature of their work? Well, as we've already talked about a little bit, principally infiltration, espionage and sabotage with a little bit of assassination thrown in as a treat. Ninja were expert infiltrators, sneaking into enemy locations such as castles and gathering information to bring back to whoever was paying them. And uh, as part of these espionage missions, sometimes they were also instructed to uh, to take part in a little bit of, a little bit of sabotage, typically arson. Uh, they would sneak into places they didn't belong and then just burn them to the ground. And then, of course, there was assassination. Although, as you might imagine, details on actual historical ninja performing successful assassinations are very sketchy. Uh, because ninja were generally good at not getting caught. Uh, so some high-profile assassinations or assassination attempts were never proven to be carried out by ninja because we don't know if it was them or not because they were, again, generally pretty good at what they did. So I'm sorry to be so vague about all this with such a lack of crunchy details, but honestly, after sifting through all the nonsense about ninja being able to run, ac run across water or turn invisible, it really is hard to know what is true and what isn't about them. But this brings us to what I wanted to talk about with Ninja in the first place, the most famously incorrect misconception that surrounds them, that they wore black. They most decidedly did not wear black, I can tell you that with absolute confidence. Why, you may ask? What did they wear instead, you wonder? Well, for the most part, they wore normal clothes, the same sort of clothing that everyone else around them would be wearing because much of the time ninja stuck into places they didn't belong by just blending in. They weren't climbing the walls to, a, to enemy castles to sneak in. They were just walking through the front gate dressed like, dressed, like a, dressed like an ordinary peasant. It makes sense when you think about it. Going about dressed like a, well, like a ninja, this was going to make them stick out like a sore thumb when they try to just amble into an enemy town through the front gate. A lot of the time, the infiltration that ninja did involved them posing as ordinary common folk, just blending in with those around them. It'd be no good dressing up in black, bristling with weapons when you're trying to not draw any attention to yourself. 
But aha, you're saying, what about when they had to go on covert nighttime operations, the one where they, ones where they were doing things like scaling walls and whatnot in the dark? Well, they still didn't wear black then because in those situations, to camouflage yourself at night, you don't want to wear black. You want to wear dark blue. So ordinarily, a ninja would be clothed just like anyone else in regular clothing, usually with light armor hidden under their, under whatever they were wearing and a few small hidden weapons here and there. And then in the rare situation that they had to sneak in somewhere at night, they'd wear dark blue or sometimes even purple to blend in with the night. So if that's true, where did the black thing come from? Well, funnily enough, it came from the performing arts and not from Hollywood movies. No, from traditional Japanese theatre. In these theatre performances, stagehands would come out dressed in a fashion that we now associate with ninja, dressed head to toe, mask covering the face, uh, the, the little hole just for just for the eyes at the top. Um, and the idea was that this clothing, this this head to toe black clothing, signified that the audience was supposed to ignore them, pretend they weren't there. These stagehands, known as kuroko in Japanese, they would scamper up onto stage, they'd move props and scenery around, and the audience knew to pretend that they weren't there and just enjoy the show, right? And this idea that these kuroko were invisible seemed to have influenced contemporary visual depictions of ninja who were also shown as being dressed in all black to express to the viewer that they were as invisible as the Kuroko. So ninja were drawn wearing black because of this theatrical trope and that image stuck. And then the dramatic tales and stories that emerged about them only amplified their reputation as deadly, silent saboteurs and assassins and the ninja did nothing to dispel any of these misconceptions either, even when stories of their abilities became supernatural. And why would you? If people believe that you can fly like a bird or control the wind, why tell them otherwise? And then over the years, these tales were passed down and the depiction of ninja caught on further and further and eventually spread across the entire world and into popular culture leaving us where we are today with famous sagas of legendary ninja performing incredible feats of stealth and daring. And all of these tales, myths and legends have culminated apparently in the story of a rat training four masked turtles named after Renaissance painters in the art of ninjutsu so they can fight a masked enemy named after a piece of office equipment. In a similar vein to the fact that ninja never wore black, despite that being the popular conception of them, you might already know that Vikings never wore helmets with horns. While this is changing in more recent times with newer TV shows and films not portraying Vikings in, horn or in horned helmets, more or less every single piece of 20th century popular media that dealt with Vikings depicted them as wearing these iconic horned helmets. And even before that too, as we'll talk about when it comes to the origin story of this particular misconception. But before we get there, let's answer the question, what did Vikings wear? We don't have a huge trove of archaeological evidence of, of, of what Vikings wore, the main reason being that clothing isn't particularly durable in the grand scheme of things. But here's what we do know. Vikings, that is 
very simply put, seafaring Scandinavians between the uh, the 8th and 11th centuries, wore clothing made of wool and flax, usually produced locally and woven by Viking women. Some wealthier individuals imported fancier things like silk and gold and jewellery, but for the most part, Viking outfits were, were pretty simple. Women wore dresses held up with shoulder straps over a smock for an undergarment, uh, with a cloak over the top if it was a bit chilly. Uh, and they also wore simple jewellery, maybe a brooch or a necklace, although, of course, the richer you were, the fancier your jewellery would be. And men, on the other hand, wore a tunic and pants. Their tunics were like big shirts going all the way down to the knees, while the pants gathered up just, just under your knee and were tucked into long socks or leg wraps. Men would also wear cloaks when it was cold and would fasten them with brooches, just like women, uh, and also wore jewellery like women to reflect their social standing. Both men and women wore leather shoes or boots and both wore belts around their waists with pouches to keep things in as they hadn't quite invented pockets by this stage. And for the men, the belts weren't just for pouches, but also to make sure that their pants didn't fall down as they didn't have anything like elastic back then. But when it came to warfare, Viking warriors, usually men, complemented their normal clothing with weapons and armour, as you'd expect. Most fought with spears and axes and would uh, usually carry a small knife-like machete called a siax. Uh, it was quite rare for Vikings to fight with swords. Swords were incredibly precious and expensive to Vikings. Uh, they were a very high-status weapon passed down through generations and, and as I say, rarely fought with. Uh, they were actually more like jewellery a lot of the time. They were just accessories. Vikings also bore shields, of course, the famous round shields that Vikings are usually portrayed with. This is, in fact, an accurate uh, depiction of, of what Vikings would carry into battle. They were made of wood and leather. They were usually decorated with colourful paint. And as for their body armour, Vikings perhaps wore armour made of cloth, hide, leather, chainmail. Again, depending on their wealth and social standing, uh, the various different materials were used to protect themselves in the heat of battle. But a chainmail shirt in particular, like a sword, was a, was a status symbol. They were extremely rare, very, very expensive amongst the Vikings. But what about their helmets? Well, again, there isn't a lot of archaeological evidence to tell us exactly what Viking helmets were like. Uh, bits of only six Viking helmets have ever been found, ever, only six, right? Which leads many historians to believe that it was actually rather rare for Vikings to fight in metal helmets. Um, they more commonly wore caps, it's thought. Um, in contemporary depictions, they, they're shown wearing headgear, caps made of things like leather or, or hide, sometimes with a little nose guard attached. These metal helmets that you might think of and metal helmets that we even see today in TVs and movie, in TV shows and movies, um, they were expensive, they were hard to come by for the Vikings and also very heavy and unwieldy. And it's thought that Vikings may have actually favoured lighter, less awkward and clumsy armour. But all the same, certainly some Vikings wore metal helmets, probably the rich ones to be honest. So why did we think that they had horns on them? Well, for one, old horned helmets have been found by archaeologists and they were falsely connected with the Vikings. Unfortunately, this is now known to be completely incorrect. Purely on an archaeological level, the helmets in question are thousands of years old, whereas the Vikings were only around 1,200 years ago. Uh, but more than that, the Vikings had horned helmetsmith began properly in around the 1870s with the Romanticist Viking Revival. Germans seeking a greater national and cultural identity as they, as the German-speaking world slowly unified into the German Empire in 1871, they were looking for ways to build a, a sense of national myth 
right? They began to pilfer Norse myths and make them their own to do this. And this led to things like the famous Wagner opera Der Ring des Nibelungen, featuring people wearing horned helmets as they performed. For some reason, the horn helmet became irreversibly attached to the popular conception of Vikings as the Viking revival took place, and the image stuck. Just because the bloke who was in charge of costumes for this opera thought that the horned helmet was quite a good look. Just like how Santa Claus went from being a large woodsman in a green fur coat to being a jolly old man in red and white, thanks to how he was depicted in early 20th century popular media and advertising, this horned helmet came along at the right time to completely change the popular conception of the Vikings. And as I mentioned, it's only been recently that we're starting to buck the trend and do away with the horned helmet trope when it comes to Vikings, which is just as well. Because horns on a helmet meant for combat are completely impractical. You'd swing your axe to try to chop someone's arm off and end up knocking your bloody helmet off as you get tangled up in your horns. So no, Vikings did not wear horned helmets. And despite what a certain American football team would have you believed, they didn't paint them on the side of their helmets either. One of the biggest and most prevailing historical misconceptions is that people in the Middle Ages, ordinary people all the way through to scholars and scientists, believed that the Earth is flat. While there were some parts of the world, principally East Asia, where people held on to the belief that the Earth is flat for a very, very long time, in most places, and for most people, this has not been a mainstream or widely held view for millennia. Never mind the medieval period, people knew that the Earth wasn't flat in the classical period. And despite all the wildly incorrect theories propagated throughout history about the Earth, its size, its makeup, its place in the solar system and what have you, we as a species have known for a very, very long time that the Earth is spherical. Some ancient civilizations in places like Mesopotamia and Egypt believed that the Earth was flat, a big disk surrounded by water. And there are some very ancient Greek texts that also describe, uh, describe the Earth as a disk. But by the time we get to people like Pythagoras, the Greek philosopher and mathematician from the 6th century BCE, he's already figured out that the Earth is round. And Aristotle in the 4th century BCE is already estimating its circumference, although he was way off. He thought it was almost twice as big as it, as it actually is. Around a century later, the mathematician Eratosthenes uh, had another crack at it, and he came very close, only a couple of hundred kilometres off. Good on you, Eratosthenes. Well done, mate. Um, it's it's just over 40,000 kilometres uh, in circumference when, when measured at the equator. You'll need a very long measuring tape to confirm that independently. Um, but by the time we get to the second century CE, the mathematician and scientist Claudius Ptolemy was making global maps of the known Earth with latitude and longitude. Ptolemy's work was studied in depth by scientists in later centuries, translated from Greek into Arabic and from Arabic into Latin. And even with the beginnings of the early Christian church, an organisation who seemed for much of their history to have been determined to be as wrong as possible about as much as possible, even they readily accepted that the Earth was spherical. No one really was going around saying that the Earth was flat. No one educated, at least. When it comes to the Western Hemisphere, to Christendom, and later the Islamic world further east, there was absolutely no question 
of the fact that the Earth was spherical. I'm sure there were lunatic fringe groups, just like there are today, loudly proclaiming to anyone who would listen that the Earth was flat, but they were, they were as wrong about it back then as their successes are today. Essentially, every scientific text to emerge from the West or the Middle East from the medieval period accepted and operated upon the knowledge that the Earth is a sphere. And this was further supported as the Age of Sail began, as explorers and colonists began to travel great distances via ships and notice things like the stars in the night sky rotating, while those on shore were able to watch the ships disappear behind the horizon, hull first, then the masts and the sails. In fact, in this time, the only place where people largely still considered the Earth to be flat was in China, who didn't change their beliefs until, uh, until European astronomy arrived there during the Ming Dynasty in the 16th century. So, with all this in mind, with it clearly established that we have, broadly speaking, known the Earth is a sphere for well over 200 years, why do people today think that it's such a recent discovery? Why do people today think that we didn't know this a couple of hundred years ago? Well, there are a few reasons that we're going to talk about, and uh, one of them may surprise you a little bit, or it may not. One of the origins of the flat earth myth, as it's called, is, believe it or not, American exceptionalism. But the other far less exciting and rather more embarrassing reason is the enormous conflict between religion and science in the back half of the 19th century. Anti-religious campaigners, those convinced by the work of scientists like Darwin, sought to cast institutions like Christian churches in a negative light. They sought to portray them as anti-science and anti-progress on the wrong side of history when it comes to well-established scientific fact. On the face of it, this is not a difficult thing to do. Just look at poor old Galileo and the trouble that he got in for suggesting that the Earth goes around the sun and not the other way around. Episodes 209, 210, get across them. Broadly speaking, Christian churches have been wrong about, well, essentially everything. But in the scientific world, at least, well, again, essentially everything. But in trying to point out that these religious institutions were so backwards and so ignorant to the realities of science, these anti-religious campaigners went a little too far and claimed that, just as the church had suppressed the idea of heliocentrism, they had also suppressed the idea that the earth was spherical. And as I said before, this just isn't true. For all the other stuff they got wrong, the Christian church never dogmatically held that the earth was flat. However, this didn't stop people from claiming that they did, and in backing up their false claims about the church, anti-religious campaigners relied on some very questionable sources. And this is where American exceptionalism comes in. In 1828, years before this religion versus science thing really got heated, an American bloke named Washington Irving wrote a biography I hope you can hear that word pronounced in inverted commas there, a biography, of Christopher Columbus. This biography was romanticised, it was fanciful, and in places just completely made up. There, was, there are sections of it that are more or less just complete fiction. Why did he write it? And why did he write it in this fashion? Well, at the time, the US, a young nation was seeking to distance itself from its English and British heritage. It was seeking to establish its own national culture, mythology, and heroes. But the problem was, 
They didn't have all that many. Once you got through the Founding Fathers, there weren't a lot of other options. If you've ever wondered why the US celebrates Columbus Day and why they make such a big deal out of the bloke in general, it's because people like Irving, in seeking a new American hero, put Columbus on this great big pedestal, despite the fact that Columbus wasn't American and never set foot on on what would go on to become the United States of America. Columbus got one of the biggest and most successful rebrands in history. Far from being portrayed as the imbecilic, greedy, cruel and murderous idiot that he was, he was instead hailed as a pioneering hero who gave the world the wonderful gift that is America by discovering it all those years ago. Never mind that you can't discover something that people have known about for thousands of years, never mind that he himself never made it to North America, Columbus became an American hero, thanks to people like Washington Irving and this so-called biography. In it, Columbus is cast as a brave hero who rejected the ignorance of the Catholic Church and their thinking that the earth was flat, which they didn't think, remember, sailing off westward into the Atlantic, confident his courageous belief that the sphericity of the earth would be vindicated. Irving's hyperbolic attempt at establishing an American mythology through Columbus describes how Columbus thumbed his nose at the blinkered, dogmatic scholars in Europe who thought he was a fool. They thought he was bound to sail off the edge of the earth, but he set off anyway. In truth, most people thought Columbus was a fool because based on their mostly correct calculations of the size of the earth, they knew he would never make it all the way to Asia as planned by sailing westward. Ships just weren't big enough to carry all the supplies needed for the distance that they'd calculated. And there's this story about Columbus's crew being dejected and mutinous because they thought they were sailing to their doom off the edge of the flat earth, and this is also untrue. They were dejected and mutinous, but that's because they were about to starve to death with their supplies running out until Columbus, luckily for them, landed in the Eastern Caribbean. Columbus had vastly underestimated the size of the Earth in setting off for his voyage, and it was only through extreme good fortune that his voyage wasn't lost forever. In short, no one involved with Columbus's voyage on any level even remotely considered the idea of a flat Earth. They just thought he had no chance of making it to Asia, but then he bumped into the Caribbean and the rest, as they say, is history. So, Anyway, the long and short of it is this. People like Irving hyped up Columbus by making it seem like he was a visionary, railing against the ignorant orthodoxy of the day, and that he was rewarded for his far-sightedness with the discovery of America. None of that is true, right down to the discovery bit. But the myth of Columbus caught on, and it's only very recently that people are recognising him for the awful, idiotic person that he was. But... Unfortunately, this story about the church believing that the earth was flat and suppressing the views of anyone who said otherwise, it suited the people trying to tear down the church as being anti-scientific in the late 19th century, so they picked it up and ran with it until it entered the public consciousness. They had so much other ammunition to go after the church with, but they still had to run with this particular story, the one that actually wasn't true, the one where the church was on the right side of history when it came to scientific knowledge, and they ended up doing more harm than good as a result. The myth of the flat earth, this idea that today we think that people didn't know the earth was round only a few hundred years ago, it's so pervasive 
that people still believe today. People still think that back in the medieval era, the common conception of the earth was that it was flat. Throughout the 20th century, school textbooks around the world taught this idea, and particularly in the US, continue to big up Columbus as a visionary, one of the people who set the record straight. But again, none of this is true. It simply is not true. As historian Jeffrey Burton Russell put it, with extraordinary few exceptions, no educated person in the history of Western civilization from the 3rd century BCE onward believed that the earth was flat. But all the same, plenty of uneducated people today definitely do putting them in the unenviable position of somehow being even more ignorant than a member of the medieval Catholic clergy. And that is quite an accomplishment. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. Those are five of history's biggest misconceptions. And I'll tell you what, I would love to get across more of them. So if you know of any other historical misconceptions you think might make for a good story, why not get in touch? Halfhousehistory.net. There's the contact form there that you can use to get in touch with me uh, and send through topic ideas. doesn't even have to be about misconceptions. can be about anything at all. It's great to hear from listeners week in and week out. Get feedback, hear how the show is uh, is being enjoyed by people around the world. Whether you're listening to it on your way to work or falling asleep to it at night, it really is, I, I will tell you quite seriously, it really is such a privilege to be part of your uh, your weekly routine. And on that note, I'd like to apologise for, for the delay in some of the episodes recently. Um, I, I, think I, uh, I think a lot of listeners will be aware of the fact that uh, I'm off travelling around the world at the moment and uh, I'm doing my best to make sure they come out in a timely fashion, but... There may be more delays uh, in the coming weeks. I'll do my best. And the episodes are on their way, even if they are a little bit late. Uh, Rest assured, uh, they'll be up there sooner or later. Hopefully sooner and not later. I'd also like to thank and welcome all the new listeners who are giving this show a shot. Um, We've seen a, a, a pretty large uptick in people listening to the show in the last couple of weeks. So welcome. By all means, welcome. It is fantastic to have you along. Hope you'll stick around. Plenty of old episodes for you to get across. It's one of my favourite things when I come across a new podcast I like, and there are hundreds of episodes uh, in the archives for me to get through. Uh, So it is wonderful to have you, and and again, I I do hope you stick around. But let's not forget about the old listeners as well. It's good to have you back for more week in and week out. All these years you've been by my side, and I appreciate it so very, very much. Thank you, particularly to those supporting me on Patreon. Patreon.com slash half history. There's been some new patrons signing up this week, and my uh, my appreciation is immeasurable. Thank you so much for the for, for the people pledging their support for the show and gaining access to all sorts of secret well, it's not even secret, it's very open what you get behind the scenes stuff, show notes, uncut episodes, exclusive merch, all the rest of it. And of course, as I say every week, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell people about whom you feel largely ambivalent. Let's get those numbers skyrocketing even further and get even more people on board. It's fantastic to have uh, have so many people listening to my Tin Pot History podcast. Anyway. Anything else? Oh, merch. There's merch available, but you know that. Anyway, we're going to close out the show, of course, with a question posed on Reddit. This one comes to us from Tech Rented Mule. We've been chatting about the Great Wall of China, and Tech Rented Mule wants to know, if there is a Great Wall of China, was there ever an okay Wall of China or a kind of rubbish Wall of China that preceded it? 